Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. To a House on the Hill by Jane Kakouris. It was a hot and humid evening in 2015, and Luke had just moved into a tiny house in Moro da Providencia, Rio de Janeiro's oldest favela, a shanty town located in the heart of the city. His new home was near the top of the hill, sandwiched between two loud and rampant drug dens. He could hear the parties and orgies happening above and below him 24 hours a day, his neighbours regularly firing bullets out of the windows. The noise was draining and constant. It was dark outside, and Luke sat frozen in fear, staring at a blank laptop screen by his window facing the street, waiting and praying. He had just been informed that the bandidos, drug traffickers from the main drug gang in the favela, were on their way to pay him a visit. Gossip on the street had spread that he was an undercover police officer. Why else would a white British gringo in his thirties choose to buy a house in one of Rio's poorest and most dangerous communities? After about five minutes, I saw a glint out of the corner of my eye. I looked around, and a number of drug dealers were arriving on the porch. Faced with ten heavily armed gang members... They asked who he was and what he was doing in their community. Luke took a breath and explained that God had called him to Brazil from New York and that he was choosing to live in Providencia because he loved the neighbourhood and wanted to serve the community and build something for them, for their children and their young people. The gang listened. Then, remarkably, they lowered their guns and said, OK then and walked away. Luke was stunned. I know what happens to people. It was a very violent time. I thought I was going to die, and it was terrifying. But God turned it around. The relief that he was alive quickly turned into disappointment, a realisation that despite all the sacrifices he had made to be there, he wasn't wanted by the people he'd given up everything to serve. Five years previously, Luke was living in New York, working as a finance lawyer with a corporate law firm. He was single, his firm paid for his Manhattan apartment, and he had so much disposable income that he saved half his pay each month. Originally from the UK, he grew up going to a local church in Surrey with his family, but he'd fallen far away from God. I was in a favourable position to go off the rails. And I did go off the rails, he says. In 2009, the financial crash hit, and having spent five years living and working in New York, Luke began to question the premise and direction of his life. Through a family member, he was put in touch with a Christian association working with street children in Sao Paulo in Brazil, providing living accommodation to homeless children who were disenfranchised from their families and or victims of abuse and neglect. The aim was to reintegrate the children where possible with their families. During a weekend visit to Sao Paulo, 
Within fifteen minutes of being shown around one of the shelters, Luke had a deep conviction that this was where he was meant to be. It was not this Damascus Road moment, he says. It was a familiar voice, not someone who was needing to twist my arm or convince me. I felt I was in good hands. Even though change was going to mean going from a six-figure bonus to zero salary, I was suddenly ready to risk everything, knowing I was in these safe hands. A few months later, Luke moved from New York to Brazil and went on to live and work in one of the shelters for street children for several years. He talks about a particularly bleak time when one of the boys in the shelter took a dislike to him, the relationship becoming so acrimonious that Luke even began fearing for his life. Emotionally and mentally drained, feeling rejected by the children he was trying to care for, he went away for a couple of days to regroup and call his sister. He recalls, She said to me, just come home, Luke, just come home. Her words made him realise that he had life choices that the street kids simply didn't have. He could choose to leave them and go home at any moment. Home to where people loved him and cared for him. The children he was working with were born without options or choices. So Luke decided to stay. By making that decision hoped to model a love and commitment to those who perhaps had never experienced it. A love that doesn't diminish or disappear, even when we turn our backs. What is intriguing about Luke's story is not the desire to repurpose his life. So many of us feel at times in our lives that we are drifting without purpose or meaning, but when we look for more purpose, it tends to be either seeking fulfilment in our work towards more wealth or influence or social legacy, or through our relationships. What is intriguing is that Luke chose to follow God's purpose rather than his own. Luke's story is one of sacrificing comfort, wealth and status to simply do life alongside the people that society in general has given up on, and at times, in return, getting hostility and death threats from the very people he's walking with. The story is a little reminiscent of the gospel story of Jesus Christ, although, of course, Luke will be the first to say he's certainly not Jesus. Unqualified, unprepared and broken are words he uses to describe himself. But perhaps this self-awareness of his own flaws has given him the ability to rely entirely on God rather than himself, in a place where he simply has to. Missionaries like Luke are perceived by many to be the outworking of a colonial interpretation of the Great Commission. This refers to a number of passages in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus tells his apostles to make disciples of all nations. People assume this means going to far-flung places and preaching about Jesus. But when I ask Luke about his work in Providencia, for him, mission is far more integral and encompassing than straight evangelism. As theologian Christopher Wright points out, Jesus was concerned with responding to the needs of people, both materially and spiritually, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The two go together and are integrated. The book of Acts and letters of the Apostle Paul in the Bible show a commitment to the followers of Jesus to preach the good news and bring others to faith, but also to live with compassion 
as a loving community seeking to address the social and material needs of those around them. In fact, Paul's first of many missionary journeys was to provide famine relief to prevent starvation of the people in Judea. So where is Luke now, 13 years after he first left New York? He still lives in Providencia, and together with his team of volunteers and a local church in Rio, he has built and runs a community house, Casa Crucero, House of the Cross, and adjoining educational annex at the highest point of the favela. On entering Casa Crucero during my visit to Rio a few months ago, I was struck by the sense of peace. The community around the house is far from calm. It's poverty at its crudest and, as Luke will say, at times depicting humanity at its darkest. Murder, rape, incest, drugs, extortion, prostitution, abuse, neglect, the list goes on. Life at the margins doesn't get much more marginalised than this. Casa Cruzero is a light in the darkness, a stillness in the chaos. It operates an open-door policy where anyone is welcome. Drug traffickers included, as long as they behave. From meal, to hang out, to talk, even to stay if someone needs a roof over their head. About 200 children, adolescents and adults, pass through their doors each week. And some of the activities include an after-school programme, adult literacy support, a communal vegetable garden, career counselling, guitar lessons... Bible studies and prayer groups. Material and spiritual needs met seamlessly and uncomplicatedly together as part of a whole. If you could rewind the clock by 13 years and make a different choice, would you? I ask Luke. He pauses and says no, but it's clear that it hasn't always felt like an easy choice. He's often pondered over the comfort and wealth that he left behind. But at the moment, he has no plans to leave. And what has he learned about God over these years in Brazil? When he relies on God, he feels a deep sense of peace and a conviction of God's love in a way he hadn't known before. When God called me to Brazil, he was saying, you need to know me again. I want to reintroduce myself to you. This is who I am, and this is how much I love you. Jesus said to his father, let thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And as I walk around the safe, clean space of Casa Cruzero, chat with someone over lunch who became a Christian five years ago when reading a passage of scripture with Luke, when I hear about Monique, who, with the team's help, has been accepted into a youth apprenticeship programme, Look out from the rooftop past the carefully nurtured community vegetable garden to the dark winding alleys and mishmash of favela shacks sprawling down the hill and into the city beyond. And watch Luke's eyes lighten as he tells me about the young people that he and his team look after and walk through life with. I realise this is what Jesus made. Nobody is neutral. Kate Forbes on her Christian faith and political future. When Scotland's then First Minister Nicola Sturgeon unexpectedly announced her resignation in February, 
Kate Forbes was on maternity leave from her job as Scotland's finance secretary. As such, Forbes, a committed Christian, had not made any public statements about politics in six months. Yet, reflecting on the campaign earlier this month, Forbes recalled how social and mainstream media were immediately awash with comments about why her religious convictions made her unfit to succeed Sturgeon. The controversy, much of it centred on Forbes's membership of the small, theologically conservative Free Church of Scotland, continued throughout the subsequent election campaign. Most involved her stance on gay marriage and Scotland's gender recognition legislation. Forbes discussed the campaign in an interview in her small office in the Scottish Parliament building in Edinburgh, one of her first since the often fractious campaign. Forbes secured an unexpectedly strong 47.9% of the vote after the elimination of the third-place candidate, Ash Regan, and the redistribution of her second preference votes. She now sits as a backbench member of the Scottish Parliament, MSP, for Sky, Lochaber and Badenoch. Forbes rejected an offer from Hamza Yousaf, the victor, the clear choice for the party establishment, of a cabinet job far more junior than her previous role. She started the discussion by challenging the idea, which she thought motivated some criticisms she faced, that atheists, agnostics and other non-believers were neutrals on questions of religious conviction. It was one of the many points where Forbes used her experience to paint a picture of public life, where issues of faith and faithful people were increasingly marginalised and misunderstood. Nobody is neutral. There's this perception, which is flawed, that there are some people who are neutral and some people who have faith, she says. Everyone viewed the world through a philosophical framework, Forbes went on. It was critical to ensure people were not shut out of public debate on the basis of their philosophies, she said, just as it was important to avoid excluding people for their race, sex, sexual orientation or any of the other characteristics protected in law. Her comments explain the unusually frank approach that she took to matters of faith when asked during the campaign about her convictions, which she insists represent a mainstream Christian perspective on issues of personal morality. I think that people of faith are under immense pressure to compromise or to change their views in the public spotlight. I think we have to logically and rationally walk through how we can both believe in a personal faith, which calls us to be public witnesses to that faith, and at the same time serve those with other faiths or no faith. Forbes, now 33, and first elected in 2016, has said that she would have voted against gay marriage if she had been a member of the Scottish Parliament, MSP, in 2014, when the Scottish Parliament voted to introduce the measure. However, she has insisted that, with the provision now on the statute books, she will defend it. By and large, I absolutely believe in freedom of choice, freedom of belief and of expression. I don't believe my views should be imposed on other people. Forbes nevertheless argued that there were issues of conscience where politicians should be allowed to make choices free from the normal party political considerations. Forbes was on maternity leave in December when the gender recognition legislation came before Parliament. 
The SNP denied its MSPs a free vote on the measure, a decision with which Forbes disagreed. The vote split all the main parties in the parliament. Little of the commentary during the leadership election captured the nuances of her positions. The vote on marriage in 2014 was deemed to be a vote of conscience. My party has always held that issues around abortion should be votes of conscience, so I think it's possible to both believe that you legislate on behalf of everyone and treat everyone equally and make space for some votes of conscience, which are a consequence of strongly held views and convictions. Forbes added that without a shadow of a doubt, MSPs should be given a free vote on one forthcoming piece of legislation, the Assisted Dying for Terminally Ill Adults Scotland Bill. The bill, likely to come before Parliament in the next few months, would allow terminally ill people over the age of 16 to ask for help in dying. Matters of life and death are hugely important, hugely personal, but have big public implications. You might think that's a tension, but I have always been able to accommodate that tension. There had never been any suggestion that Forbes's faith led her to exclude any group from receiving funds when she was finance secretary, she added. Of course, it did inform my care and concern for those in poverty, for those who are underrepresented in society, for those who need more help than others, she said. As her office, filled with the noise of children enjoying their lunch break at the neighbouring Royal Mile Primary School, Forbes mostly sounded relaxed when talking about the leadership campaign, but she insisted she had felt subject to disproportionate scrutiny, particularly pointing to a leadership debate staged by Channel 4, which included a segment on faith in politics. If you watch that clip, it's basically the interrogation of Kate Forbes. There are very few questions put to the other candidates. The imbalance, she said, rested on the false assumption that Yusuf, a practising Muslim, and Regan, who had no religion, took essentially neutral positions on faith questions. She said, however, that she had won support from many people of faith because of her willingness to speak openly. I can remember one imam saying to me, it's given us hope to see you being true and authentic to your faith even when it's difficult, Forbes recalled. Forbes, who grew up partly in India, where her parents were missionaries, recalled how living through the Gujarat earthquake of 2001, when she was 10, helped to bring her to her own faith. The earthquake is estimated to have killed between 14 and 20,000 people. It was coming face to face with the realities of life and the realities of death that I started my own faith journey. Forbes became noticeably more animated when talking about the nature of her personal faith than at other times, when she sounded far more guarded. Her faith was not a hobby like knitting or playing the guitar, she said. It's a truth that compels me to be loving and caring and be willing to sacrifice my own life. For the moment, however, the questions facing Forbes are more humdrum. Forbes gave her interview before Yousaf warned MSPs to back Sturgeon, the former First Minister, following her arrest in June on suspicion of fraud in an inquiry over the SNP's finances. Sturgeon, who was released without charge, 
has vigorously denied any wrongdoing. Peter Murrell, Sturgeon's husband and the former SNP chief executive, the first person arrested, and Colin Beatty, the party's former treasurer, have also been released without charge. Both also deny any wrongdoing. Forbes accepted the arrests had been a huge shock. I said after the first arrest that integrity should characterise everything we do, and not just the substance of integrity, but the perception. She also accepted that there were limits to the areas where faith could guide her thinking. She declined to say whether Jesus would prefer Scotland to be independent or remain part of the Union. There's no 11th commandment that decrees whether or not Scotland should be in the Union. I think what God cares about, really, is the values by which we live. So you're going to get no answer from me on that. She sounded still less certain, meanwhile, about where her future career path would lead. She would continue as an MSP for the foreseeable future, she said. But she went on, the honest answer is that I don't know what to do next. She had previously said it was highly, highly unlikely she would ever stand to be leader again. She added, I still hold to that position. She said, adding that she had family constituency commitments. She added, nevertheless, that a sense of sacrificial calling was ingrained in her by her parents' decision to leave Scotland in their 20s to serve marginalised, impoverished community in India. I wait to see, really, what I can and should do next. Kate Forbes was interviewed by Robert Wright, The Financial Times. Healing Touch in an Era of Personalised Medicine by David Cranston In 1877, Arthur Conan Doyle was sitting in one of Dr Joseph Bell's outpatient clinics in Edinburgh as a medical student, when a lady came in with a child carrying a small coat. Dr Bell asked her how the crossing of the Firth of Forth had been on the ferry that morning. Looking slightly askance, she replied, Fine, thank you, sir. He then went on to ask what she had done with her younger child who came with her. Looking more astonished, she said, I left him with my aunt who lives in Edinburgh. Bell goes on to ask if she walked through the botanic gardens on the way to his clinic and if she still worked in the linoleum factory. And to both these questions, she answered in the affirmative. Turning to the students, he explained... I could tell from her accent that she came from across the Firth of Forth. The only way across is by the ferry. You notice that she was carrying a coat which was obviously too small for the child she had with her, which suggested she had another younger child and had left him somewhere. The only place where you see the red mud that she has on her boots is in the botanic gardens, and the skin rash on her hands is typical of workers in the linoleum factory. It was this study of the diagnostic methods of Dr Joseph Bell that led Conan Doyle to create the character of Sherlock Holmes. A hundred years later, and I was a young doctor. In 1977, there were no CT or MRI scanners. We were taught the importance of taking a detailed history and examination. 
including the social history. We would recognise the RAF tie and the silver silk-producing caterpillar badge on the lapel of a patient jacket. We would ask him when he joined the Caterpillar Club and how many times he had had to bail out of his plane when he was shot down during the war. A life saved by a silk parachute. We would notice the North Devon accent in a lady and ask when she moved to Oxford. The patient's history gave 70% of the diagnosis, examination another 20% and investigation the final 10. Patients came with symptoms and the doctor made a presumptive diagnosis, often correct, which was confirmed by the investigations. Screening for disease in patients with no symptoms was in its infancy and diseases were diagnosed by talking to the patients and eliciting a clear history and doing a meticulous examination. No longer is that the case. At the close of my career as a renal cancer surgeon, most people came in with a diagnosis already made on the basis of a CT scan and often small kidney cancers were picked up incidentally with no symptoms. The time spent talking to patients was reduced. On one hand, it means more patients can be seen. But on the other, the personal contact and empathy can be lost. Patients lying in bed have sometimes been ignored. The consultant and the team standing around the foot of the patient's bed discussing their cases amongst themselves. Or, once off the ward, speaking of the thyroid cancer in bed three or the colon cancer in bed two. Yet patients are people too, with histories behind them, and woe betide the medic, or indeed the government, who forgets that. With computer-aided diagnosis, electronic patient records and more sophisticated investigation, the patient can easily become even more remote, an object rather than a person. We speak today of more personalised medicine, with every person having tailored treatment of the basis of whole genome sequencing and knowing each individual's makeup. But we need to make sure that this does not lead to personalised medicine by forgetting the whole person, body, mind and spirit. Post-Covid, more consultations are done online or over the telephone, often with a doctor you don't know and have never met. Technology has tended to increase the distance between the doctor and the patient. The mechanisation of scientific medicine is here to stay, but the patient may well feel that the doctor is more interested in her disease than in herself as a person. History taking and examination is less important in terms of diagnosis and remote medicine means that personal contacts, including examination and touch, are removed. Touching has always been an important part of healing. Sir Peter Medawar, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine, sums it up well. He asks... What did doctors do with those many infections whose progress was rapid and whose outcome was usually lethal? He replies, For one thing, they practised a little magic, dancing around the bedside, making smoke, chanting incomprehensibilities and touching the patient everywhere. This touching was the real professional secret, never acknowledged as the central essential skill. Touch has been rated as the oldest and most effective act of healing. Touch can reduce pain, anxiety and depression, 
And there are occasions when one can communicate far more through touch than in words. For there are times when no words are good enough or holy enough to minister to someone's pain. Yet today, touching any patient without clear permission can make people ill at ease and mistrustful and risk justified accusation. It is a tightrope many have to walk very carefully. In an age of whole-person care, it is imperative that the right balance be struck. There's an ancient story that illustrates the power of that human connection in the healing process. When a leper approached Jesus in desperation, Jesus did not simply offer a healing word from a safe distance. He stretched out his hand and touched him. He felt deeply for lepers cut off from all human contact. He touched the untouchables. William Osler, a Canadian physician who was one of the founding fathers of the John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore and ended up as Regis Professor of Medicine in Oxford, said, It is more important to know about the patient who has the disease than the disease that has the patient. For all the advantages modern medicine has to offer, it is vital to find ways to retain that personal element of medicine. Patients are people too. Making Vows How Binding Promises Can Lead to True Freedom by Alex Hughes Quid Petis what do you seek? What will you commit to, and for how long, and at what cost, or for what benefit? And how will you structure your life in order to fulfil your commitments? These questions touch on the very mundane, gym membership, streaming subscriptions, etc., and the most serious aspects of life, such as romantic partnerships and career moves. Do you decide these matters in accordance with an overarching philosophy of life or by some golden rules you follow? The same questions are faced with momentous intentionality by people in religious communities. According to ancient tradition, admission to the religious life begins with a ritual answer to the question quid patis, and the community rule ensures that its pattern of life supports and fulfils the quest. The question of what we most want in life rarely leads people to become a monk or a nun. For most of us, it seems impossible to believe that personal fulfilment could be found within the limits of a strictly vowed life. And yet, more people live under religious vows than you might first imagine. The most common vows in many Christian traditions are made at baptism, confirmation and marriage – as well as ordination vows for those who become clergy. But even if this makes the idea of a vowed life a little more familiar, the notion of a binding, lifelong commitment is still quite an alien thought. However, a new book on the vowed life in the Anglican Church argues that not only do vows demand more attention within the Church than they seem to have garnered recently, but they are actually a point of considerable interest and allure to those outside the church and may be seen as liberating and life-giving for those who undertake them. 
In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. At first, this seems counterintuitive. Surely he meant to say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. I didn't think so. There is a romantic idea that people follow their hearts. But if that were the case, advertising would be a fool's errand. Advertisers know very well that our heart's desires are unstable and that they are easily attracted to the treasures of beauty, wealth, fame and so on. And most of us will have had the experience of being led to desire something, a flashy car, a bigger house, a better job, a sexier partner, only to discover that the treasure that had captured our hearts does not bring the lasting satisfaction for which we yearned. At the heart of religion is the belief that God is the treasure we seek, that only God can truly satisfy our deepest desire. For Christians, this does refer to the future, to treasure in heaven. But not only that, or at least not in a simple way. This is where vows come in. Probably the most puzzling of all religious vows are the ones made by parents and godparents for children at their baptism. How can anyone make a vow by proxy? How can anyone dare to make a vow on behalf of someone else? Surely everyone, especially children, should be free to make their own decisions. Well, it is certainly true that vowing a child to Christian life goes against the modern ideal of autonomous human subject who freely makes unconditioned choices for themselves. But anyone who has ever raised a child will know that whatever its critical benefits, it is also a myth. Parents make multiple significant decisions about how their child will grow up, and those decisions have a deep and lasting effect on the child, for good or ill. Such formation is inescapable, and no one not even with the help of skillful introspection or expert psychoanalysis, can step outside their personal history and make unconstrained choices about who they become. Our identities, including the pattern of our desires, are to an extent given and not self-made. This remains true even in the light of postmodern resistance to the idea that people have a fixed identity, rather than one that changes and shifts as it is performed, since the performance does not arise ex nihilo out of nothing. We are, as Heidegger said, thrown into life. We are conditioned, contingent, and no achievement of individual can release us from that. In the first act of King Lear, as his faculties begin to unravel, the king famously asks, who is it that can tell me who I am? Christians answer this with reference to the voice of God discerned in the Hebrew scriptures. I have called you by name, you are mine. These words are spoken to those who are confirmed when they renew their baptism vows, which, as I have said, were often made for them when they were too young to speak for themselves. The invitation at confirmation is to take mature responsibility for those solemn promises, which is easier to understand than the earlier vows made by proxy. But even this is not entirely straightforward, because while someone might joyfully receive the gift of a God-given identity, I have called you by name, which is not subject to successful performance, how could anyone 
agree honestly with the divine claim, you are mine, since even the greatest saint knows that their daily performance is largely governed by self-interest. This leads us to the crux of the vowed life, where we can begin to see how it is possible, and even desirable, to bind oneself to something despite the risk of failure. I have already alluded to the matter of choice in our lives and the conflicts that may arise between a religious, a modern and a postmodern perspective. But there is something more, and much more important, to be said from a Christian point of view. The Christian view is that it is not so much our choice about God that matters, than God's choice about us. God chose to create the world, and God chooses each one of us, which is the only choice that matters ultimately. This is the deep context of our lives, into which we are thrown, not by blind chance, but by divine choice. Fundamentally, therefore, all religious vows are about choosing to be who we already are, choosing to live as one who has been chosen by God. Every other choice is made in this light, so that whatever happens, no matter what choices we make in the future, good or bad, God's fundamental choice of us never changes. And the experience of living under this promise is one of liberation. The postmodern or modern ideal of complete personal freedom necessarily entails total responsibility, so that the overall success or failure of our lives lies in our hands alone. Perhaps a few narcissistic individuals can easily accept this. He was a self-made man and he worshipped his creator. But it is a heavy burden of responsibility. The religious alternative does not deny the importance of responsibility. The Bible is concerned from beginning to end with the demands of justice and righteousness. But it does not make our performance the final measure of our worth and therefore our identity. If we have bound ourselves to the identity God gives, any account of ourselves, such as I am a failure, a loser, a disappointment, is covered by I am a beloved child of God. It is by living into the divine indicative, I have called you by name, that we can begin to let go of self-reliance and welcome and inhabit the sustaining power of God's you are mine. For sure, the idea of binding lifelong promises may be countercultural today, but rightly understood, they can be seen as joyful and liberating. Those who seek this way of life seek a heavenly treasure that enriches life at every step. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen allowed. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.